Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 62. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly LaBiotech podcast and this episode is going out on September the 8th. And September the 8th is World Literacy Day, it's World Physical Therapy Day, it's also Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Nurses Day, and it is Stand Up to Cancer Day. In terms of science milestones, it's the day in 1930 that Scotch tape was launched, and while Scotch tape isn't Scottish, a Scottish inventor by the name of Dunlop invented the pneumatic tyre on this day in 1892. It's also the day in 1854 that Dr John Snow removed a pump handle in London to stop a cholera outbreak, as he suspected that the outbreak was due to contaminated water from the pump. And he was right. I did a couple of interviews with people at an event in Portugal this week. I wasn't there, just using wonderful technology to do the interviews. But it was interesting that the temperature here in Scotland was higher than it was just outside Lisbon. However, it looks like it's not going to last as there's a prolonged spell of rain on its way just to coincide with the big air show that takes place this weekend here. I guess that's just known as business as usual. Anyway, that brings us to today's theme and guest, and as we're now in September, there are lots of events around cancer. Last week, we looked at Blood Cancer Awareness Month, and as I mentioned earlier, today is Stand Up to Cancer Day, and there are an awful lot of companies doing exactly that through their research. And so today, our guest is Anish Suri from Q Biopharma. He is the Chief Scientific Officer at Q, and he spoke with us about Q Biopharma's platform, cytokine-based drugs, and Q's approach in the evolution of immunotherapies. So I guess the easy question first is if you could tell me a little bit about the background of Q. So again, thank you for the opportunity. Q was founded on the premise of harnessing the very natural signals that the immune system uses to modulate itself. So this is a big difference from what others do. We believe there's a significant advantage here. Nature's already done the core protein engineering design selection through millions of years of vertebrate evolution. And what we've uh, sort of founded a platform is we be- where we can pluck these very nature's signals or, or, or cues, hence the name of the company, and make very selective targeted drugs. So that automatically dials into very important components as you think about therapeutics. It dials in specificity and selectivity based on what's been engineered for the host. And it dials in safety as a matter of that when you look for really bioactive molecules like cytokines or immune activation signals. So this has been the core sort of basis. And that principle applies across all the way from immunotherapy of cancers, where we've made most progress now in the clinic two different molecules in about five different solid cancers, trials ongoing. Very exciting data emerging already from the first one. The same principle would apply for immunotherapy of chronic infectious diseases. And in reverse, actually, would apply for autoimmunity, where you really don't want to carpet, just immunosuppress the patient as we do today, but selectively attenuate and tune out the pathogenic T cells or the immune repertoire while keeping your broad immunity intact. So this has very far-reaching consequences as you think about the next evolution and generation of immunotherapeutics. And could you tell me a little bit about the current cytokine-based drug treatments and how we've got to this point? 
Yeah, look, so cytokines are a great example of molecules and signals that are extremely potent and exchanged by immune cells to modulate a host of functions, all the way from activation to uh, generation of effective responses to down modulation. So in the case of cancer immunotherapy, IL-2, for example, has been a very well-validated cytokine. It's a it's as a target. It's a validated drug. It's an approved drug. The problem has been is it activates every T cell and systemically activates the immune system. So the challenge that becomes is, is one that deals with the constant, which is how do you direct IL-2 for selective consumption by those T cells that are specific for cancer antigens while sparing everything else? That's how you generate a therapeutic index. I and mean, that becomes the analogy that I've often used for this on the outside has been you don't need to light your house on fire to light up your kitchen stove. And that's what our platform allows us to do. Because when you look at what defines a tumor-specific T-cell is the fact that that T-cell has a T-cell receptor or TCR specific for tumor antigens. What defines a virus-specific T-cell is that T-cell has a TCR that recognizes virus antigens or a bacterial T-cell or bacterial antigen. So we've devised through this immunostat platform that we've deciphered to selectively target those T-cells that harbor TCRs for tumor antigens and deliver IL-2 to them. The frequency of that is extremely low in the patient. So 99.99% of T cells in a patient or an individual have no relevance to cancer antigens. And that's an immunological fact. These precursor frequencies oftentimes are about 1 in 10,000 or rarer. So the question is, how do you spare the 9,999 when focusing on this one? Well, we've gone after the marker of the highest fidelity that nature gave you, which is the T cell receptor. And that's been really extraordinary in the case of IL-2, what we've done. And that's very different from what others have done. Others have done taking the cytokine and have attenuated the cytokine to its interactions with the cytokine receptor. So you make it less potent or less biased to one receptor subunit over the other. However, what that does is it still generates a cytokine that's an equal opportunity agonist of every T cell. There is no selectivity for the consumer. So there have been challenges. We've seen this with the not-alpha cytokines and the failures. that They've been quite visible with significant investment. But with the data now, after ASCO, that we've put out with our first molecule, which we believe de-risks the entire platform, not only do we have single-agent activity in late-stage cancer patients that have failed many prior lines of therapy, but in the frontline setting where checkpoint inhibitors like PD-1 are approved, we've actually more than doubled the response rate. And that is remarkable when you think about uh, in the early stage of clinical development, at least from our vantage point. Can you tell me a little bit more about the platform in terms of how you've done it differently and how you approached the issue? Because obviously everybody's doing it slightly differently to you. How did you get the idea to approach it differently? Yeah, so the technology, then the company was really founded from foundational work that came out of Dr. Steve Almos lab, who's the chair of structural biology and biochemistry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. So Steve is a structural biologist, and he looked at the immune interface, which is how the T cell gets activated by an antigen-presenting cell, like a dendritic cell and that encounter. He looked at that interface from the lens of a protein engineer, which was very good for the company, and not from the lens of a contaminated immunologist like myself. And he very quickly determined that the protein modules that the T cell was seeking could be formatted on an antibody FC backbone. So what the T cell recognizes is a peptide HLA complex, 
HLAs are specialized molecules that present peptide antigens to T cells. They, they That's where the T cell encounters them on an antigen-presenting cells. Steve essentially took the entire sort of interface and translated into a very stable protein therapeutic. So what we've got here are peptide HLAs to which you can then attach any given immune modulation signal like a cytokine, like a cell surface receptor that have been characterized. But the principle is that that peptide HLA will only engage those T cell receptors that are specific for that peptide antigen. And that peptide antigen is derived from the target of choice, a tumor peptide in the case of a tumor cell targeting, a virus peptide in the case of a virally infected cell, you know, this following those sorts of principles. So that was a big breakthrough for us because that allows us to dial in exquisite selectivity and specificity. So you now have a, a targeted missile-like approach where you can get the IL-2 to, to only those T cells that recognize that specific peptide HLA that's a part of the immunostat. And by virtue of that, you can make that IL-2 being focused on a very small fraction of your repertoire that is actually irrelevant to disease. If this molecule bumps into the vast irrelevant part of the repertoire, the IL-2 has been affinity tuned that its engagement on its own is a relatively inert outcome. And that's what allows us to build in the therapeutic index. So Jim, if you look at it, what we've done in the clinic and demonstrated, where IL-2 in all other previous human experience has been dosed in the microgram per kilogram range, just to give you a sense on how bioactive the cytokine is. We've actually gone all the way up to milligrams per kilogram. We've went up to eight mix per kg with no MTD uh, established. So that's a pretty remarkable outcome when you see the amount of IL-2 we've been able to dose safely. And in fact, our recommended phase two doses for mix per kick at this point in time, where we've expanded out to, to many patients. So we think this is just a, a significant breakthrough. And that principle, by the way, applies for any given immune activation. It doesn't have to be just IL-2. It could be IL-12. It could be IL-15. It could be IL-21. A host of other cytokines that activate the immune system, but we're avoiding through this platform, the carpet bombing of the entire immune system while focusing on the component that matters. And that's the biggest differentiation over what others are doing. But does that mean that there are less potential side effects? There are less potential side effects. That also means that the tolerability profile is more favorable. That's what we've now seen. We've dosed over 80 patients in our trials. We've not seen any of the major IL-2 toxicities, vascular leak syndrome and the cytokine release syndrome, you know, these are really nasty side effects, oftentimes leading to fatalities, grade four, grade five uh, outcomes. Our uh, profile, as we've reported in, in the various oncology meetings, including the last ASCO meeting in Chicago in June, has been really encouraging. So that's one. The other is when we've combined this with the PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors, and this, the first instance is Merck's map, we've not seen any signal of synergistic talks which oftentimes has happened when you combine two immune activating modalities together that you see an uptick in the safety concern. So that, again, bodes very well. To me, it's not from a personal vantage point. It's not very surprising because that is the expected outcome is if you tailor mark and tailor activate the immune system and you avoid the systemic activation, you should be able to get immunity while preventing pathologic immunity to self. Those are really positive things for patients. Are there any other positives for the patients that you're working with? You know, we just reported, Jim, in a late-stage metastatic patient, which we're really thrilled about, and we've just confirmed it, a complete response, which is very rare to see. 
So metastatic disease, remember um, these are patients with widespread tumor deposits all over the body. In this case, the patient had METs in the liver, METs in the bone, which are very hard. It's still on the trial, but a year into the trial, these lesions kept on becoming smaller and smaller till a point when at about 40 plus weeks, uh, the patient presents with a complete response. Well, we just think this is remarkable uh, just to see that. Uh, we've had several patients now uh, that are continuing with durable responses going on to a year and beyond. That's quite remarkable. So these are not just responses where the tumor comes down for a period of time and then bounces back up. We're seeing durability. You know what they talk about, the tail end of immunotherapy going out? We're seeing that now just for a large number of patients. The other observation, which has been quite remarkable, and we reported on this a, a few weeks back, is the fact that patients that express low levels of PD ligand on the, on the, in the tumor environment, so this is the CPS score, uh, low levels of PD ligand patients are refractory or not as responsive to anti-PD-1 therapies as the ones that have higher levels of PD ligand. But in that subset, for example, in the head and neck situation, head and neck cancer, uh, where we uh, have the first molecule uh, being um, evaluated, the patients with low CPS scores, the response rate with pembrolizumab alone, historical, is 14%. So about one in six to one in seven patients will respond with the vast majority not responding. In that unique subset, if you stratify, further stratify the combination with the immunostat, which is Q101, our response rate when you put it on top of the checkpoint is 50%. So there's a big difference between 14 and a half to 50% where you now have a one in two. I mean, it's remarkable, a three X increase. So that's a very unique observation we feel as the data continues. And again, we feel this is going to have a read through because if you think about the checkpoint space, the checkpoints are contingent upon you having the right T cell as a patient. If you don't have the right T cells in the first place, what good is a checkpoint? Well, we are the precursor to that because we put those guys in play. So we think this has broad ramifications for uh, expanding not only the patient reach, but the depth of clinical responses on both axes. And I think that from a patient lens, we think it's going to be transformational. Absolutely. That's really good news. As far as the delivery goes, is it something that you have to, you're mentioning that people are seeing that tumors pretty much disappear. Do you still need to treat them? Or once that's happened, are they free from you having to treat them? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic point because under the current uh, trial protocols, you continue to treat, but one could imagine a situation down the road where this becomes a very testable point that once you have no evidence of disease, you should be able to stop and the patient should be able to maintain. Because if you think about our drug, Jim, our drug doesn't do anything directly to the cancer. What our drug does is activates your immune system intrinsically to create a very effective anti-tumor T-cell repertoire, just like you would for an infectious agent as you do with vaccines. You have B-cells and T-cells and you create that. And then when you have a reinfection, you encounter it with your own repertoire. You don't necessarily need another. We think same principles could apply here. We've obviously down the road, this is some of the areas where we will test this out. But I think that is a really exciting sort of proposition to see if this is providing down the road what we refer to in the field as sterilizing immunity. So you've put the right repertoire in place and that can then control the reaction and there, there are variants that emerge that the immune system is competent enough. And as we're moving upstream and upstream in the lines, because as trials start, Jim, as you well know, 
with novel first and class medicines, you usually go to late stage cancer patients that have been really sort of beat up through multiple lines of therapies and failure. So immune competence of the individual, their immune competence metrics are not at the best. But as you move earlier and earlier in earlier lines of treatment, where the cancer is not yet fully sort of metastasized or you can stop it early, we think this sort of a mechanism may further provide enormous benefit just by the sheer health metrics of the patient being more healthier from the immune lens. Yes, I was just going to ask about how different stages of the disease, because obviously the further along with the disease you are, the less capable the immune system is. And also the older you get, the less capable the immune system is. Exactly right. And so one of the one of the reasons why we went in in late stage as a monotherapy was to make the point that as a single agent, this unique platform is active and can provide anti-tumor efficacy. And that's what we've demonstrated in monotherapy activity. And that becomes very important as you then look at earlier lines of therapy data, including combinations where people then don't have to have any doubt whether you have an active platform or not, because you've actually demonstrated it being active in patients that have failed prior lines of therapy. And now you're simply moving it upstream with no additive toxicity. So from the safety, again, a very favorable way to go. And as you move in earlier lines, a couple of things happen. One is you're right. So so the patient metrics are generally much better health metrics. The other aspect is if you can really target it at the level where the cancer is still localized and not metastasized, that also creates a, a very unique opportunity and bring about what we believe is going to be significantly more therapeutic benefits. So to that end, we have a trial ongoing, driven actually it's an investigator-initiated trial being done at Washington University in head and neck cancer patients where they've got a localized tumor mass that is going to be surgically resected, and then the patient's going to go on some standard care treatment. But during that short period before you do the surgical resection, you get the Q molecule, Q101. So then you have a very rich translational data set to really examine the tumor mass pre and post administration to really drive home the point of the changes in the immune microenvironment in the cancer that happened. And we believe that, you know, that's going to obviously lend important mechanistic insights. And that, that, that trial is going really well. We're very excited when that data is going to be discussed publicly in the future. So I guess early diagnosis is a help in uh, all of these cases. Early diagnosis, it is. And if you think about it, the earlier you go, the more sort of selective and safe you almost have to be. You, you know, you can't take a sledgehammer approach from the earliest point simply because that creates a lot of liabilities. It does not create for an effective stance in terms of combinations and potential things you can bring together. So we feel there are several advantages here from the mechanism viewpoint. There's also several advantages, Jim, from the platform itself. These molecules are manufactured, for example, if you just look at the manufacturability, they're made exactly like an antibody molecule. So we are a very small company of about 50 people, but the manufacturability, we just did this with an external CDMO using... 30 years of commercial monoclonal experience that we've had upstream, downstream. So that's actually a very unique win. So it's a novel platform with a very boring manufacturability that's well established. And so the cost of goods, it's given every three weeks IV like an antibody drug. It has an antibody FC on it. So that is, again, a very unique proposition. We've seen this now the shelf stability to give you a sense on protein engineering and the strength of that. The shelf stability of the GMP, the drug batch that's in the clinic, is going north of 36 months. Most monoclonal antibodies, the stability is about 
you know, a couple of years. So we're equal to or better than most monoclonals. Again, speaking to the beautiful protein engineering and stability, because you can have a you can have a great platform, you can have a great target, but if it's not manufacturable and it's not practical, it's hard to make it accessible to patients. And in this case, we've just been really thrilled with the metrics that we've seen, both on the manufacturability end, but also on the stability end. You mentioned that it's not specifically treating cancer. Is it applicable to all different kinds of cancer? It is. So what I meant by that was the molecule is not directly inducing any anti-tumor death. It's doing it by activating the immune system, which then recognizes the cancer as being foreign and destroys it. But one of the strengths of the platform is the modularity. Because, for example, once you have this in place, then you can simply change the tumor antigen from one molecule to the next to change the tumor indication. And that usually is a very small peptide. The T-cell epitope gym is about a 9 to 10 amino acid segment. So this first molecule that I'm describing to you in the clinic, Q101, has an epitope from the human papilloma virus for HPV-driven epithelial cancers, like head and neck cancer, like cervical cancer, like anal, penile, vulva cancers. The second one in the clinic that we got the IND approval last year from the FDA targets Wilms tumor one, which is another oncofetal antigen expressed by many different solid cancers. So we're in the clinic with that in ovarian, pancreatic, colorectal, and gastric, but also massive opportunities in glioblastoma, lung, breast, AML, multiple myeloma, et cetera. Now, the difference between the first molecule and the second is only a 9 to 10 amino acid segment of the T-cell epitope primarily. 99% of the molecule is sequence identical. So when you've derisked the first one, that's what I was telling you, you've derisked the entire platform. And the FDA actually acknowledged that. We were really thrilled because they endorsed that perspective because when we got the IND approval for our second molecule, we did not need to do any further IND enabling preclinical toxicology because the clinical data from the first one in the patients was sufficient to have a read through. Plus, the FDA allowed us to start that second trial at a MIG per kick, which is a clinically active dose. And the reason that becomes important is it saved us about a year's worth of dose escalation. So where Q101 as a first in-class molecule in man for the first time, that dose escalation started at 60 micrograms per kick, and we dose escalated to pick our dose. 102, which is the Wilms tumor one molecule, started at a MIG per kick. So it's an enormous saving in times of efficiency. And it's an enormous saving in terms of regulatory guidance. And we think that's going to have a read-through because all we have to do now is remember the core IL-2 framework remains the same. All you're doing simply is swapping out different tumor antigens to change the antigen to will. So it creates essentially a limitless opportunity to go after every cancer known to man. And furthermore, going after even neoantigens and personalized immunotherapy. Would the platform be applicable to any other conditions? Yes. So we have published papers primarily driven by work done out of Steve Almo and other folks who study uh, viral infections. There was a paper in Journal of Clinical Investigation a few years back looking at activation of HIV-specific T-cells for chronic infectious diseases. And that paper got a lot of sort of press with the same platform. But now instead of having a tumor epitope, you have a virus epitope. So when you think about things like HPV, HCV, or HIV, where you have the chronicity, so for chronic viral infections, you know, same principle, except you're changing now going from cancer to an infectious epitope. So that paper was published by Harris Goldstein, Steve Almo, some time back as a principle and a proof of concept of application of the same technology in a different therapeutic area. 
we've uh, sort of reported on some early preclinical work and have presented at meetings where now we've applied the same principle. Instead of activating the T cells, we've actually deactivated them to autoantigen. So in this case, it was insulin and type 1 diabetes. So again, when you think about that, the, the principle is essentially the same, except that instead of broadly immunosuppressing the patient to bring down autoimmunity, you selectively deactivate only those cells that are recognizing your own self-antigens. So in this instance, then the antigens becomes your own self-peptide to which you've already broken tolerance. And insulin is a very well-known one in diabetes. Gluten is a great one in celiac, uh, gluten epitopes, or, you know, so there are diseases uh, where some of the autoantigens have been well characterized. And the same principle would apply there. So, you know, this is the modularity of the platform, not only going within an indication to go after multiple diseases, like in cancer, going from one cancer to the other, but actually going beyond therapeutic areas to go after distinct biology and outcomes. I assume as well that because you're not having to take something from the patient and manipulate it and put it back in or take things from healthy people to put into somebody else, I would assume that that helps with cost. Yeah. So cost of goods. And also if you look at economics and patient reach, so, you know, cell therapies have been great, but significant challenges, both cost, patient reach. If I look outside the sort of the G5 in the US, I mean, even access to a large part of the world where there's a large population and large medical need. This is essentially a biologic that is performing in a way very analogous, but doing cell therapy with the biologic and even the patient where you harvest the patient's own immune repertoire to become activated. But essentially, it is a T-cell therapeutic that directs those right T-cells against cancer. So, you know, we think there's a compare and contrast here where it has a significant sort of ramifications and positive attributes when you compare to ex vivo technologies where you have to harness this. There are conditioning regimens for the patients. There's the turnaround time. There's manufacturability challenges. And furthermore, cost. So an immunostat in our first trials is given every three weeks IV. Usually cell therapy, if you compare and contrast, is a one-shot treatment. Uh, it's not like, you know, you have repeat folks coming back and, you know, the feasibility of that is still to be fully sort of determined on, on how far reach and the impact. Where are you at currently in the journey? We took the first molecule in gym in head and neck cancer patients. We've got a monotherapy trial where we've already not only seen the responses that I described to you in late-stage patients that have failed multiple lines of therapy, but we've seen a clear increase in survival, which is the gold standard metric for any cancer therapy, is ultimately demonstrating an overall survival benefit. So to give you a sense, in a third-line setting where these patients have failed between three to all the way up to four, five, six lines of therapy, we are seeing a median overall survival in our recommended phase two dose group that is now going about 14 months or north of that. And the reason I give you that number is in a second line setting, which is an earlier line with checkpoint inhibitors like pembrolizumab, Mercs, or BMS's anti-PD-1 nivolumab, the median OS is between seven to eight months in a second line. There's a third line that likely is going to be even lower, you know, four to six months as well, investigators tell us because the patients are, have, have progressed, but we're seeing 14 months now at this point. So that is quite remarkable. So we think we have a clear registration path there for which we are planning to engage the FDA towards the end of the year. And then in a frontline setting, so this is in the frontline recurrent metastatic setting in the same cancer, where the checkpoints like Merck's pembrolizumab is approved, but with a response rate of 19%. 
we've actually more than doubled that. Right now, we're at in the combination of combining our molecule with Merck's pembrolizumab, our response rate currently is at 44%, which includes the one complete response that I described to you. Early data, but very exciting. Remember, this. so this is from the first 16, 18 patients worth of data. So again, you know, as this sort of matures, we feel that we have two, even in the first molecule, we have two distinct registration paths. You have the monotherapy in date stage, and you have the frontline combination with checkpoints. Then we've got the one or two molecule with the Wilms tumor one. That dose escalation is happening right now in a basket of cancers, ovarian, colorectal, pancreatic, and gastric. We should complete that by the end of the year and then be able to choose a dose at which what would be a recommended phase to dose and expand that out. And that's a remarkable opportunity because those cancers are largely refractory to checkpoint blockade. So we've already started to see as a monotherapy dose escalation, metrics of anti-tumor efficacy. We've seen reduction of metastatic lesions in patients. We've seen stable disease. We've seen decrease in tumor biomarkers in the blood as a monotherapy. So if you can create momentum as a monotherapy and demonstrate that, then obviously combination of that with a host of other agents, including immunotherapies, checkpoints, targeted agents, opens up a very fertile space for drug development and, and therapeutic development. So it's a, it's a great opportunity, and those signals will likely share towards the end of the year at a meeting. Obviously, you can't say exactly, but what kind of timeline are you hoping for in terms of the ability to get this to more patients? So, you know, once we get alignment with the agency and we can trigger a registrational trial, so we did, we, we've always done our trials with a very translational bent. So not just looking at safety tolerability, but actually looking at metrics of efficacy that I described to you. I think this, uh, you know, in terms of expansion and getting into patients, I think this could well be on its way and planning those sorts of next steps uh, next year, as early as next year. And with one or two, the opportunity is pretty significant across many different solid cancers. And these cancers are, you know, what I describe, I mean, pancreatic is a tough cancer, colorectal is a tough cancer, gastric is a tough cancer. Colorectal, you're well aware, the increasing incidence, particularly in younger adults in the Western hemisphere, quite, quite remarkable. So we feel this actually could provide a very differentiated opportunity for what, what are indications and cancers of really clear, imminent unmet medical need. And so, uh, again, a tremendous opportunity there as well. Uh, I'll tell you one thing about our Q102 molecule from the other side, from the investigator side. These are physicians who have a wide variety of options for their patients that have failed. We have a wait list of patients. We cannot get them on the trial fast enough because we don't have enough slots available because we're still in the dose escalation phase. So that speaks volumes about not only the need, but investigator enthusiasm for this asset and just really thrilled to see that response. And hopefully a few years from now, this is making a difference in terms of curing people and not just extending life by two months or whatever it is. That's why, that's exactly, Jim, why I shared with you the median overall survival in the monotherapy. The fact you see in a third line where expected is going to be far below second line, we're seeing 14 months in north where second line reported by checkpoints is seven to eight months. That tells you, that tells us, and which gives us the motivation that we're doing substantively something very different than what you just said, which is exactly this little trickle effect. And what we want to make is a significant dent in the outcome, in obviously favor of the patient. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? I think we've covered the major aspects. Again, just to stress, you know, we started with cytokines, gyms, and again, the principle of immune activation 
necessitates that one has to be selective and selective to the right kinds of T-cells. People oftentimes make generalized therapies, and I often point out that you cannot expect selectivity and degeneracy in the same molecule. It cannot happen. So you can make degenerate cytokine therapies, and we've tried this with IL-2 with many different approaches. I think fundamental immunology tells us that you've got to get this to the right consumer, and the right consumer is the anti-tumor T-cell. So, and I think, in essence, that's where the field is headed. And in, in essence, that's what cell therapies demonstrate in sort of a very cumbersome way, because you have a monoclonal anti-tumor T-cell repertoire that you've created with artificial CAR receptors or TCRTs, but do see responses. So we think we're getting to it with a biologic, which I think could be very disruptive to the space. And most of all, you know, from a personal lens, Jim, I'm just delighted for the patients. This is a tough disease coming in, uh, metastatic, getting into an experimental medicine trial. To see these kind of outcomes, I'm, I'm hoping really we do a lot more good for a lot more of people. While cancer certainly isn't beaten yet, it's great that there is hope. And I really enjoyed talking about how the body's own immune system can fight cancer with a little help. Before the end of the podcast, I should mention, don't forget to check out the latest news and articles over at labiotech.eu. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening, and you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech. 